0: Hello and welcome to the Two Real Cinema Club. I am James Rezica.
1: And I am Andres Lorente. And on Two Real Cinema Club, we watch two movies, old one old, one new, and we try to make some connections between the two. This week we watched ten, uh, Apollo 10 and a
0: Half, A Space Age Childhood, I believe it's called. And Jimmy, what yeah, was the other from, one we watched? From Richard Linklater. And then we watched um, his 2006 film, Scanner Darkly. Um, before we start, I got—I must say—I—I—I—I'm um, uh, going to start by saying I did a terrible thing this week. Okay. Uh, I did—I—I um, I did like you know the one thing that you should never do, which is I, I searched for myself on the internet. We, Ooh. so we've been doing this is like episode six now, um, and we've you know we've been on Apple Podcasts for a bit, and I thought I'll check, I'll check to see how visible we are, and if you search on Two Real Cinema Club, um, then we do come up. Um and I, but I was thinking how how else will people find us and I I so I, I searched on our names if you search on your name uh you get a whole bunch of soccer podcasts The bug getting so I'm guessing, yep. so, that, so that right so there is somebody with your name who is um, big into spanish language soccer am i right I think it's at least two players
1: yeah one was for I think it was Fernando Lorente who played for the national team in Spain and then Tottenham United Tottenham Hotspur. And then, boy, I don't know. I think there's another one kicking on. Every once in a while, I, another Lorente comes into the, the, the soccer consciousness. Have you
0: looked into it? Uh, Lorente is like.
1: Football. Yeah, well, it's like the name Lawrence in English. So it's a pretty common uh, name uh, in Spain. Um, where my father's from in Cuba, it was much more rare because I think it's more of a Spanish name. But um,
0: I don't know. Why do they no, have money uh, that they're uh, willing to give me?
1: They could sponsor the podcast. <laughs>
0: We might have to do some football coverage at the same time, but, uh, but so, 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 uh, well, at least something comes up. It, uh, it doesn't find the podcast, but it finds, it yeah. finds someone called Lorente. If you search on my name, I discover that the top hit um, is an interview with a Washington state serial killer. And it's, <laughs> it says, it um, James Ruzica is guilty of six sexual assaults and two murders in 1973. That's, that's like the top hit. That's what comes up mm-hmm. on Apple Podcasts. It is so bad. So he did um, have a podcast or some sort of uh, interview that they've turned into a podcast? Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. Precisely. And it's, it, this is not me. I'd like to em- emphasize to anybody listening. So I, I didn't murder anybody in 1973 or any of the years since. Our listeners probably don't know that you went by Jimmy
1: Razor, Razor for a long time, which I, is a weapon of sorts. So yeah. <laughs> how did, well, I, should, I hate to get too grisly, but the other Razika, yeah. how did he uh, claim his victims?
0: I, d- I, d- okay. I should listen to the podcast, shouldn't yeah. I? I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure. I want to. I don't feel like I should give him the coverage. You know, mm-hmm. I should be t- I should be reclaiming the name and not and not cow a second. In, you know, as the second choice. Um. Yeah. Maybe I'll find out some more. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure what I feel about that. So, uh, so this week we watched Apollo Ten and a Half. Um, what's it about? Apollo 10 and a half. Well, I think it's about
1: memories and the power to remember things but it's also very american so one of my questions for you is going to be how much you were able to relate to it um i think it really zeroes in on this the space age um and sort of like the coming of age of a young boy and the united states all at once um, and it's very, very nostalgic for those years. You know, he talks really specifically about a two- or three-month window between April and July of 1969, I believe. But it's kind of like the whole 60s and even into the 70s. A lot of that still rang true uh, for things that were happening in the 1970s. So I think it's, it's kind of a memoir nostalgia piece, but I think there is a little lesson about memory that is super on the nose by the end. And we'll talk about that when they get there, yeah so i i will i should preface that i'm I am the audience for this film, I think, and I'm not sure how wide an audience it actually has and we can talk about that but uh Linklater's born in nineteen sixty I was born in nineteen sixty eight so these memories I know about them because you know I would have been about that same age nineteen seventy six so I mean all this stuff was still fairly fresh when you think about um, the course of time in American history um so, it, it really is kind of made for me, and someone who was young at that time in the 60s or 70s. It um, has a great opening. I love the way the, the planets become a kickball, and we had these red plastic kickballs at recess that were just uh, <laughs> everywhere. Um, and it's really, it has a sort of brick pa- brisk pace because uh, Jack Black, I think, does a great narration. I really love Black- Jack Black as the older Stanley, who's the protagonist of the film. Uh, it's kind of a deceiving pace because. You get a lot of information. The film doesn't necessarily go too, too far. Um, So it really feels like a memoir piece, as I said before. And uh, Jack Black is sort of revisiting his youth in Houston, Texas, which is where all of the NASA stuff was going on, all the space uh, development, exploration uh, industries, the satellite industries around it. Um, That was all happening in Houston as Houston was developing. So the story is sort of about three developments, I think. Houston is a place... Uh, NASA and the space um, industrial complex as well as Stan who is the probably eight or nine year old um, uh, protagonist of the film and he feels very much just like a a younger version of uh, Richard Linklater as far as I can tell Uh, through some sort of uh, fantasy he's enlisted to be in the space program on the Apollo 10.5 mission which came about because they made the lunar landing uh, module, I think, too small, so it can't take an adult. It has to take a young, a young kid. So he gets in there. Um, and that puts him into the the action, as you will. Um, I get some licorice pizza flashbacks because it felt like another late um, middle-aged American yeah. director going back and looking at youth. Um, um, and even there was this one scene where the girls are playing when touch-tone foam, phones come into circulation, they're playing songs and making crank phone calls just the way uh, someone made a crank phone call on Licorice Pizza. So there were definitely some, I had memories of those memories of these other films. Um, um, it's really wonderful. I love the, it's it's animated. So I, I think he used it, was it, the rotoscope technology that they yeah. used on Skinner Darkly, yeah. So I guess he went back to that. So it doesn't I mean it fits in perfectly with the Scanner Darkly because they they look very similar. And I think it's they a gorgeous film. Similar. I really liked it. Um, and there are also these wonderful moments where he's redoing um, old film re- reels or television programs or commercials um, in the animation. And it just looks it makes it look really um, wonderful. But um, his story, I'm going to just start talking about Stan's story quickly because it, it sort of gets sandwiched into all these other things that I'll sort of list all at once. But, um he trains. He's selected for this mission. He sort of trains for it um, as a young astronaut, um, and then he um, is eventually going to go on the uh, uh, the trip where he's actually landing the lunar craft. And you sort of see that side by side with the actual—I can't say actual footage of of the uh, U.S. astronauts doing it, but the actual animated version of the of the landing. Um, so there like there are sort of three sections of the film, I guess. There's this development of the program and like the development of his life and school and friends and all that and family. Then there are all the trials and tribulations that the program goes through. There's an explosion on Apollo 1, I think. Um, just various technical difficulties, Pratt Falls. And then there's finally the landing on the moon, which is this mission accomplished sort of piece. And I think for the context of the film or the meaning of the film, it's sort of like growing up is confirmed. He's sort of coming of age. Um, So the film sort of follows that structure. There aren't a whole lot of moments of his um, NASA journey when you really count them up. It's probably 10 or 12 minutes of the film. And in fact, Jack Black kind of keeps cueing you that, oh, we're going to go into this other thing first. We'll come back here. We're going to go to this other moment here. Um, So it seems like Linklater's got that as his structure, but he really wants to get away with it because I think what he wants to do is really um, just fall back in love with like the food, as terrible as it was. He's gutted on you know, <laughs> uh, close-ups of all the restaurants and all the crappy foods that we were making in the United States at that time. There's this wonderful bit, the remake of The Sound of Music, which was probably a big movie of that decade. Um, News reels. He even um, animates the Apollo, Apollo 1 tragedy. Um, he occasionally fix, um, fills in little bits of photos and film with the animation. It's pretty subtle, but I think when the family's looking at their home videos because they're animated the home videos are a little bit of uh like uh, either vhs or probably actually earlier um like super eight look to yeah. them um so there's occasionally uh nice little tricks like that one of my favorite thing was um there's one point where or that might be in a Skinner darkly i forget what film this is in now um the family's driving in a car and i think the the what would have been the rear projection in a in an old film for live action, that was actually the real the live action stuff, and then the animation was inside the car, so you saw the real <laughs> world going by. And that might have been in the other film. I'm not sure, and they're kind of mixing together right now. But um, it really, uh, it really is this collection of moments growing up um, as a family, a big family. I think there are five or six yeah, kids a lot in the of kids, family, yeah. and they sit down to watch the cartoons, So it's great to see these animated people watching cartoons and getting. <laughs> animated <laughs> cartoons, or doubly animated cartoons, getting satisfaction out of that. But he does go into the board games, and he lists all the board games, all the great TV shows. Um, and it it becomes this fantasy. The, 70, the 60s and the 70s, I'm sure, were not that great, but it becomes great. And that fits in with his theme of his father is working at NASA, but he's kind of a square who works in shipping and receiving. So he's not in the exciting, sexy space stuff. He's really just a... Ordering things and, and sending them out and, and receiving them. Um, so Stan starts to embellish his father's life, telling everyone in his classroom at show and tell or whenever he can, you know, my father's this amazing guy and he was <laughs> right there when the, the Apollo 1 crashed or whatever. And he was, you know, he's talking about the setbacks from the, like an insider's perspective. Um, and then he starts to do the same thing with his own life. So I think that explains, that sort of sets up him being asked to be a the 10.5 lunar. Uh, module lander. Um, so he starts to fantasize about his own world. And I think that creeps into the reality of what the sixties really were. Cause he really is romanticizing. And as I said before, I think this is made for an old guy like myself because I, I loved it. I loved why I was laughing out loud a lot of times. Cause I just thought it was so funny. And it just, I remembered, you know, some product that they were advertising or some of the board games or some of the TV shows. And I just started laughing hysterically. So it really uh, works for me. Um, because I remembered so much. Um, but I'm not sure that it would work for kids. It's called a space-age childhood. I don't know that it would be that uh, interesting for kids because they just don't have that connection to that era. Maybe they have a connection to the, the space landing, the lunar landing, and the space program. But uh, they wouldn't connect with all those um, products. In fact, they'd probably find those TV shows super boring and that food absolutely disgusting and, <laughs> uh, and those board games totally boring.
0: Well, so. I, see, I did what I did watch it with two children. Okay, so I watched I watched it with my children who are twelve and fourteen. Yeah, and um, I'm happy to say they loved it. actually. good. Um, oh, good. So you know, we all, all four of us sat down to watch it, and it was a real pleasure to watch. It was oh, yeah, It's brisk and it's funny and tender and yeah, sweet and captivating. It's great. But yeah, oh, the good. children really loved it. Oh, good. And I I think some of the things they loved are that actually they still recognise the board games, So we have some of oh, those yeah. board games. I played them as a boy. Yeah. Um, and We've recently watched uh, *WandaVision*, which is one of the Marvel um, television shows, which plays on like the TV of the 60s and the 70s, and so they recognized some of the television from that. Um, And they a lot of they just found um, great joy in comparing the childhood of 1969 with their own childhood, and it was things like people smoking everywhere, or you know, the corporal punishment, or the kids playing with fireworks and firing them at each other in their backyards. uh they, you know, just the just the little differences in school life and you know the kinds of punishments they got the food that they ate they just lapped it up oh, they good. really loved it that's excellent um, so i yeah i think you and i probably watch it and think hey this film is directed at us because yeah. we were you know we were almost there at the time but i think there's something universal about this childhood i think it does translate there are also, you know, there's a whole bunch of great scenes um uh, one that really sticks in my mind actually is when Stanley goes and visits his grandfather, and they have this scene where he's, the grandfather straightens up nails yeah. and teaches Stan how to straighten nails so <laughs> that they can keep the nails and use them again, which is such a great example of de- demonstrating a character through action. It yes. tells you everything you need to know about the grandfather. Yeah. <laughs> he salvages and straightens nails and keeps them in a jar. That's, that's, you, know, you've, you have him captured there. I don't. Um, that, yeah. So there's a whole bunch of great scenes and great moments yeah but the the problem i've had with the film even though i you know i loved it i enjoyed it very much but there is no story yeah um i just don't there isn't a story um i don't feel like you know we got to the end didn't i i mean you were talking about it being a coming age story i sort of felt like stanley who's been in his fantasy plucked out of his year at school and yeah. sent off to the moon i just kind of felt like actually he hadn't learned anything by the end he hadn't made any big decisions there'd been no kind of big outcome no change there kind of weren't any stakes. It was just like reading pages of his diary, you know, mixed in with pages of a fantasy story that he wrote for school about going to the moon, and and you know all the characters were the same people at the end that they were at the start. Um, so you know it's it's a it's a movie of many moments which could have been presented in pretty much any order. Um. And you know, enjoyable characters, but no real story. I think you were you were going to mention something which I thought was the most interesting part of the film. yeah, um, what were you going to say about the film being about memory?
1: Oh, yeah, so um, this leads to my point that we'll probably talk about for both films. Um, just the ending like I found the the ending to both films quite unsatisfactory. Um, and in this one, it's because he he pops his theme in the very last piece of dialogue, and it just, it's on the nose. It's um, well, you know how memory works. Even if he was asleep, he'll someday think he saw it all. And that was his mother as she was putting him to bed because he didn't make it all the way through the lunar landing. And his father saying, "Oh God, I was hoping his grandchildren would be he'd be able to tell his grandchildren that he yeah. saw this live on television." So it just felt very much on the nose and. Um, actually the line before that too I'll talk about that in a moment too um, it just felt on the nose like he was trying to finally get the theme in it was just too much it was too blatant I guess it was so obvious for me um, so that really hard for me it hurts the film because I I, I, t- I tend to try and work backwards like you gotta really solidify your ending and then it's all I think a good film is all about setting yourself up so that last uh, scene or that last uh, moment really rings true and it just didn't it didn't feel necessary maybe they didn't need to do it at all Um Just before that, he's sleeping on the couch with his parents and his mother also says, congratulations, you did it, to the husband and said, we all did it. Um, (laughs) And to me, I think that was two things. It was sort of like, we got this far as a family, we've got six kids and this guy's now kind of old enough to, he even says, Jack Black in the narration says, you know, their parents had kind of given up on parenting by that point. So it also felt like, okay, we did it, (laughs) we parented, we got these guys uh, to this point. Um, and it also, you know, also the space age. Obviously, that, that um, he had his little part in making the space age happen. But as a result, I think it just felt like the the theme was quite obviously pasted into it. Whereas I was I was kind of getting that feeling anyway. Um, so I I, I, agree, I agree with you. I just don't think there's much story. And I think I prefaced that when I said, look, there kind of this three act structure for his story, but there's so little of that. It sort of becomes quite prominent towards the end when he's dozing off, watching the real thing happen, and take, he, Linklater takes a lot of time for him to land the module and and enjoy the planet for a moment. Um, but there's not yeah there's not a lot to really latch on to otherwise, and I'm not sure how well the two things meld together, like the, the, those little bits of his space. Exploration story as well as all this stuff. There's almost too much. I love the film for all the nostalgia, but it's really a memoir piece, and he obviously mem- remembers a lot, and he's stuck it all in there.
0: I mean, it is a film about memory. It's uh, the the, you know, the moon landings, a bit like um, you know the Kennedy assassination or whatever. Like they yeah. become these. These kind of like pivot points yeah. where you know everybody remembers where they were for this or for that. It becomes like a collective memory, yeah. which is may maybe doesn't happen so often these days. I don't know if you had the same thing when you were at school. Everyone at school would watch the same television program in the evening, and then you'd all talk about it the next day. And I don't think that happens anymore. I don't yeah. think there's the same you know big collective cultural icon shows that, that everybody watches and everyone talks about the day after. I agree. So maybe there's less collective memory now. Yeah. I, I mean, I was saying how much I enjoyed the film and I hate to rag on a film that I, you know, I had a great time with. Yeah. But um, the film does use two of my least favorite film writing techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, so both of which kind of slightly great on me. The, the first one is when it starts with some exciting, a bit of exciting business that very early on Stanley is, approached at the playground and told, yes, you are the boy who is going to go to the moon. We're going to train you up and you're going to go to the moon. Yeah. And then, you know, after a few minutes of that, um, Jack Black doing the narration, he says, oh, but wait a second, let's back up. I'm going to tell you some background and we will return to this. Yeah. Um, which I feel is um, so many stories seem to get told this way. I think because they have been written to appeal to readers at studios who are under instructions to, to abandon a script if they don't see something interesting in the first 10 pages. Um. So, um, so I feel like so many movies now are front loaded with a big event. If you haven't front loaded your movie with a big event at the beginning, no one's going to read the rest, so mm. it will not get green lit. Yeah. Um, so, this you know, the, uh, this form of green lighting yeah. is then changing the shape of cinema. So that kind of, that annoys me. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that annoys me, even though I love the film, is that it features extensive narration all the way through, and Jack Black is even narrating. The events that we can clearly see on screen yeah when his dad is drinking a beer in the car jack black says my dad was always drinking beers in the car and he, i know i know because i, know, I yeah. can see him doing it right now you don't actually need to say that part yeah um or, or when you know the boys were getting punished in school and jack black would talk about yeah you know, the, the, the the teachers would regularly punish us with physical punishment at school. You think, well, I know that because you're showing, you're showing it to it. me right now. <laughs> Jack Black is a great person to listen to. Well, yeah. I'm very happy to listen to him tell me anything. But it's, it's slightly anti-cinema, I think, to have a person uh, yak in your ear, explaining what it is that you are looking at right now. No, there it is. There, there, that thing. Look. Yeah. Um, so both of those things kind of annoy me. They're kind of anti-cinema. Yeah. But I, I feel guilty complaining because I had a great yeah. time. It was a very enjoyable hour and 40 minutes, hour and 35 minutes. It's yeah. a nice, brisk mm-hmm. film. Doesn't outstay its welcome. lot to enjoy. Had a great time. Uh, I feel rude now for complaining about that, but I still will.
1: <laughs> Not an instant classic, um, but full of uh, yeah, great memories, great moments that just don't uh, make... Like a compelling through story, I don't think there's not through line or anything like that, but um, it does. It's brisk, and I think it's deceptive in that sense because you you get a lot of information, you see a lot of American history in the late '60s, um, but you don't get much of Stan's story really, and it doesn't. You know, it's not necessary. This I don't know how I would have done it differently. Um, I think I would have maybe just made the Stan story and then had the background more. It's more
0: that all the, what's yeah. in the background is really the foreground and what should be the foreground is the background. And that makes it a little complicated, I think. I mean, maybe if we'd done it, Stan would have had a bully or something like that. And mm-hmm. then he would have yeah, initially been bullied over his Apollo 10 and a half story. And then eventually he would kind of sort of figure out mm-hmm. that, yeah, it was a, was a kind of a a fantasy. But he'd learned something for it and he was able to face the bully. Yeah. I mean, that's just off the top of my head. Yeah. Maybe that's yeah, very course. crass and obvious, but... Um, that would be a character journey. Would they make a better film? I don't know. I really enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah, maybe yeah. it wouldn't be as an enjoyable a film. I don't know. I've, maybe I'm wrong to complain about it. Yeah. I've had, I made a little note of um, the other Linklater pictures that I have seen. Okay. And besides Scanner Darkly, which we'll talk about in a minute after the break, yeah. um, I've written down, I've seen Days and Confused, Before yeah. Sunrise, Before Sunset, Before Midnight, Waking Life, School of Rock, um, and all these films, actually, when you see them on a list like that, they are all about nostalgia and memory and um, viewing the past through a lens. Um, I think they, they all seem kind of you know, nostalgic in this kind of distorted and quite warm, cosy way. Uh, and, and I enjoyed yeah. all of those films. Um, yeah, I so, remember,
1: yeah, I looked at his list of films too and I realised, oh boy, I've seen a lot of his films and, you know, I'm not going to say any of them are my top ten all-time films, but
0: I've enjoyed most of them. I don't think he's made... Too many crap films. I don't think so. Yeah. I think he's decided what territory he wants to explore, and he's gone for it. So, you know, I take my hat on to him for that. I'm glad that you guys didn't think it was too much of an old guy picture, because I really felt like, oh,
1: this is great for me. I'm having... I'm just a... I don't know, the fox in the hen house or some of that, or in the cat's pajamas. I don't know what the expression is. I was just having a great time laughing hilariously. And I thought it was wonderful, but I thought, boy, it's not like the super exciting animation that the kids are into. It's a story that happened long before they were born. So, uh, it's good to know that it has a little wider appeal because I was going to make the, make an argument that we might see films that are even more geared to certain age groups or diet demographics now, because everyone's watching on their own it's that point that you said before like it's there's there are no more water cooler television programs or water cooler films really because there's so much crap around us at all times so uh, the selection process could get even more narrow and directed and I figure okay this is gonna go into that that's uh, 45 to 55 60 year old crowd and they're gonna love it they're gonna eat it up but then there's something for their kids to watch upstairs on their computer and you know a different streaming service or whatever it just it felt felt like This might not have such wide appeal, but that's great that the the kids like
0: it. We have very sophisticated kids, of course. Of course. Of course. It reminds me a little bit um, of um, Stranger Things. I don't know whether you've seen that. Seen a few episodes, yeah. And and that, because I think I am exactly the same age as the kids in Stranger Things. Oh, probably, yeah. I think I must have been born like the same year that those children in the show were born. Yeah. So that feels like laser guided to us. Yeah. But but, um, But my daughter's friends, so who are all 14, they love Stranger Things. Yeah. I think I think there is a wider audience than um, I think I think we can see ourselves in, in other eras mm-hmm. I think that's how it works yeah. I think that's how it works mm. Right uh, so that's a poll, a 10 and a half yeah. uh, joyful I loved it yeah. sounds like you loved it as well I did um, yeah I did
1: I don't, that's why I don't want to say too much, uh, too. That's too critical or too cold because it was actually a, a, a lovely time, and it's 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 pacey. I mean, it moves pretty quickly. It's an hour and a half anyway, but it moves pretty quickly. And
0: I just I could listen to Jack Black for hours and hours. and then so. <laughs> so uh, we'll take a quick break, and then we'll talk about another Richard Linklater film, uh, which probably no one could honestly say they enjoyed. Um, but but which which covers some of the same ground. So we'll come back and talk about Scanner Darkly uh, after the break. And we're back uh, to talk about a different Richard Linklater film. Now, 2006, A Scanner Darkly. Um so also an animated film, also rotoscoped, just like Apollo Tan and a Half, also with a yeah, similar, very similar animation style, similar colour palette. Um, you know, the, the look of the film uh shares a lot in common with uh, this year's Apollo 10 and a half. An absolutely stellar cast for an eight million dollar movie. So Keanu Reeves, Robert Downey Jr., Woody Harrelson, Winona Ryder. It seems amazing that you could afford a cast like that on eight million dollars, but I think the world was a little bit different in two thousand and six.
1: Um, well, yeah, it
0: was. So the, the film is uh, yeah yeah it's back when um, no one would give Robert Downey Jr. parts. I suppose this is pre Iron Man, isn't it? So it probably is just just pre Iron Man. And actually, I like think a it's, couple of years yeah. before suddenly everything turned upside down for him again. And for Winona Ryder,
1: so, she had been um, caught shoplifting, maybe two thousand and one. Oh yes, so she was that's yeah. Right. So that lo- so she
0: kind of had no gigs for years. Yeah, didn't so she? that
1: might explain some of the casting. But I think uh, people like to work with Linklater. So I think. Um, who had worked with him before? Anyone in that group?
0: I'm Jack, not sure. Well, yeah, Black's
1: in the other film. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. But, you know, he's one of these directors I think people do like to, to work with. So he could probably
0: attract some talent just uh, with the premise of the film. And Yep. So Keanu, I suppose, you know, he had done great with The Matrix and then kind of fallen out of favor because The Matrix sequels were so poor. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was also probably scratching around waiting for John Wick to happen. So, yes, mm-hmm. everybody was at a little bit of a low ebb. Um, ended up being in this very interesting film. So it's based on a Philip K. Dick book. Um, it starts out with the the um, the intertitle Seven Years in the Future. So in 2006, mm-hmm. um, that was 2013. Yeah. Uh, I think when the book was published in 1977, that would have been the mid-80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and it still kind of looks like seven years in the future now. So... Um, Keanu Reeves plays Bob Arctor, who is an undercover narcotics agent. He's investigating uh, substance D in California, which is a new drug. Um, He wears this amazing suit. It's a scramble suit, which kind of makes him unidentifiable. It's like this big onesie that he puts on, which just projects an ever shifting image of other people. And he calls himself Fred when he's looking undercover. Um, And he lives with uh, a couple of stoners, um, Barrison Luckman, um, and he's supposedly trying to track down the origins of substance D and do this undercover narcotics uh, work, but then uh, his police uh, superintendent tells him that he has to surveil himself. Um, so the police tell Fred, the undercover narcotics agent, uh, to survey to to, to surveil Bob Arctor, um, and his his on-off girlfriend uh, Donna, who's uh, Winona Ryder, and because. Uh, Uh, Arctur is using substance D It makes him kind of his it makes his world very fractured and kind of depersonalized and he starts to forget who he really is and he's kind of surveils himself and isn't quite sure who is the real him you know is he more real when he's wearing the scramble suit Um, and eventually he he becomes so reliant on the drug that he kind of can't function anymore Uh, so towards the end of the film he completely fractures um, and he's sent to rehab uh, with new at, uh, with a company called new path um and it turns out that he's been sent to spy on them because they may be the producers of substance d so they're kind of uh milking the cow from both ends both producing the drugs and then um rehabilitating the the addicts so it's a um a, you know a pretty dismal devastating horrifying film about drug addiction um To the extent that I think, you know, it would be a great film to show to teenagers because almost everybody on the film is taking drugs and nobody is having a good time. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's kind of—I've written here—the banal workaday terror of drug addiction um, is what this kind of film is about. It's not dramatic; it's just a you know a slow eating away of your humanity um, by the drugs. Uh, Have you have you ever read any Philip K. Dick? Only do androids
1: dream of electric sheep. Mm. I read it as part of a communications class, so that became material for Blade Runner. Um, I, think yeah. that I don't remember reading any short stories. I've
0: had the opportunity, but I haven't. Yeah. Uh, a few years ago, I went on a bit of a binge, actually, mm-hmm. and I did a count up this afternoon. I've read 15 different Philip K. Dick novels. Novels? Um, wow. Novels, yes. I mean, and they're all kind of, they all come in at like 68,000 words, or whatever. They were written like to a very tight, yeah, sort of work out so he could get get them out as a novel. Yeah. Um. So none of them are very long. Um. And you know many of them have been turned into films, yeah. um, or television series. Yeah. Um. And they are all. Um. I might have told you this when we were setting up the podcast. They they are all the same. His novels and they are all fantastic. Um. You know I wouldn't have read fifteen if the first yeah, yeah first one or two weren't great. They're all just fantastic. But they're all about the same thing. They're all about um drugs and depersonalization and uh, he has this kind of these kind of recurring themes about kind of drugs and altered reality and about mind control and social control and dystopias and and this kind of idea of kind of humans against machines as well yeah. um, so they all kind of explore these same themes and they all reflect on his own experience because i think he was taking a lot of drugs when he wrote these books um, and he was having a terrible time and all the characters in his books are taking drugs and they are all having a terrible time as well mm. um and I think this style of filmmaking, um, this rotoscoped animation, which makes everything seem kind of a bit dreamlike and yeah. you know, a little bit unreal and a little bit hyper real at the same time. It's um, such a clever artistic decision, I think, for a way to tell this story. I can't imagine the scramble suit which Arcta wears really working if you did it in a live action film, yeah. whereas as an animation um you, you very quickly decide it's believable um, and it, it, it sews itself into the fabric of the film. Yeah. Uh, I think there are so many elements of the film that um, lend themselves to animation the way that hallucinations mean that some of the characters turn into insects. Yeah. So, but some scenes happen and you're, you're not sure whether they're a hallucination or are they really happening in the world of the film? Yeah. And because it's animated, you know, you can't really tell everything yeah. seems dreamlike. Um. So I think from that point of view, even though it's a dismal, sad experience, it's a powerful and artistically successful film. Did you, I hesitate to use the word enjoy, but did you enjoy this film? I did. This is the second time I've seen it. So I did see it in
1: 2006 when it first came out um, in a theater. And the scramble suits really, um, they really jarred me. I was trying to really um, figure that out. I don't, uh, but I agree with you. I don't think you could do it in live action, so that was the only way to do it. Um, they're very interesting. Yeah, you're, you do, you describe it pretty well, but it just means that the, the character is always changing. But the animation is subtle enough where every once in a while you can sort of see, oh, that's Kiana, that's Kiana, that's Kiana, and then another another <laughs> yes. actress or actor is, re, uh, is revealed later, um, and you can see that actor a little bit too. So it's it it doesn't it doesn't scramble so much, or he intentionally scrambles it enough so that. Um, you can occasionally tell who it is, and that and that helps because um, there are a couple scenes where there are three in a room or two people talking together in scramble suit, so it helps a little bit. And then their voices are altered so that what you're hearing in the exterior of a scrambled suit is a different voice entirely, even different actors in this case. Um, and then if, if they're showing you an interior shot of a Scramble suit, um, then you actually get Keanu's voice. I think that's the only voice you hear inside the scramble suit um so that helps out a little bit i remember being troubled by it when i first saw it because it's almost like there's an animation that doesn't fit in with the rest of the animation and that's obviously intentional but it, <laughs> it, it didn't look as good as the other stuff i think that's what it was it just didn't look as good as the regular rotoscoping because there was this extra thing where they're trying to camouflage the, the the protagonist and i think that made it difficult for me but I've, I've come to terms with that And i think you're right it wouldn't work at all um with live action and yeah, I think if I'd seen people turn into insects um, while someone's on drugs, I would. In, when I see that live action film, I think that's kind of a cop out because I've done a few <laughs> drugs. I never get that stuff, or they, they're just getting better stuff. I guess I don't know. Um, but I think uh, it does work in this film, definitely. Um, so yeah, I thought yeah, I, I did enjoy it. I really do like this film um, it's not something i'm going to go back to again and again and again, but um, it was nice to come back to it what fifteen sixteen years later
0: oh my God, see
1: it and according to um what do we use yeah, i m d b um right made seven point seven million dollars, so it didn't even make enough money
0: to pay for itself uh, uh it which per film which i Feel is quite omnipresent. I've seen. I yeah. feel like you know, I've seen. I've seen it and seen it quoted all over the place. Yeah. I'm surprised that it didn't make the money back, yeah. especially on a relatively modest budget. it's According to IMDb, yeah. Um, maybe by now it's made. I don't know if that would include streaming. Or if that
1: was just its theatrical release back then, but I, I don't know how made, these made, it, I don't know how this made fun. I mean, I paid four bucks to watch it on YouTube. I don't know if. Uh, Link later is getting any of that, so.
0: <laughs> You've made your contribution. Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, I tried to help. Um, I was going to talk about Keanu Reeves a little bit, because um, yeah. I think, is he typecast or what? I'm just not not sure what to do with Keanu, because I like him as a guy. I think he's um, he's entertaining a lot of films. But at this point, I think he is um, typecast into this low-energy dude guy who doesn't get troubled and protagonists (laughs) kind of need to get troubled a little bit, right? So he's just, he's, it's almost as if he's sleepwalking through these films. And it's very funny because he's animated, which is an odd (laughs) adjective because I would never call uh, someone so one tone as being animated, but he's he's figuratively animated. Um, Yeah, He's actually literally animated. So it's not that he's, you know, he's got lots of animation. He's got lots of energy. Um, And it's it's just kind of funny because I, I, he delivers some lines and it's just so dry. And I think that's the Reeves style, but there is this one long solilo- soliloquy towards the maybe end of the second act or something like that. It's before he kind of um, gets into trouble with himself, which is kind of bizarre too. Um, but he goes on and on about the, how we, how we're seen by ourselves and how we see each other. And it's all under this, you know, this context of constantly monitoring and observing people, that house that they live in, um, mm. Is fully cameraed and mic'd up, so he can actually sort of watch himself doing things. And then there comes this point where I think he has to say, "What I'm Arctur?" Because <laughs> doesn't he find out that he's Bob Arct? Ra- Ra- is it Rockter or
0: Arctur? Arctur, Arctur, isn't it? Yeah, yeah.
1: I'm I'm Arctur. Like he didn't know who he was investigating. And that whole moment just kind of slipped by me. Like what? But it seemed
0: like a perfect line for Keanu Reeves. <laughs> to not know who he is. Um, People complain a lot about Keanu Reeves acting. I think he's a fantastic, wonderful actor. I, yeah. I think he fits into kind of like that school of realism, doesn't he? I think he would be at home in a, like a Rossellini or a Fellini yeah. film or something, where where you know all the delivery is is kind of very very flat and yeah. undemonstrative. Yep. Uh, um, yeah, that's kind of thing. That's where he belongs. I suppose I remember his early roles, you know, everybody remembers Bill and Ted. He was in yeah. um parenthood as like a stoner teen. Do you remember that? I don't remember that, no. Oh, so it's wow. like I think that might be the first time I ever saw him. Like, and so he's you know, kind of been stereotyped as this kind of yeah. you know stoner Californian ever since. Yes. I,
1: well, I think oh. he's fantastic in Bill and Ted's. I think that is the Reeves or um, My Own Private Idaho. I think he's kind of, that's, that's his wheelhouse. Mm. But it's hard to, for me, it was a little hard to take that wheelhouse into things like The Matrix, these action films which need, they seem to need more adrenaline. And I, you know, he was in Speed, too, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's in his films, but he always feels very morose to me somehow. Maybe it's just, that, yeah, it's just total naturalism or or something that I can't put my finger on. But I think this this script kind of plays right into... Um, his typecast to a certain extent, cause it doesn't, it, he, he's got the drugs. He's sort of got like a, a law enforcement job. If I mean, he does work for, He's basically a policeman as far as I can tell, but he has to, he's undercover. So I mean, it, it, it does work. Um, but I'm not sure that it's, uh, like he, it, I don't know how much he really like leads this film. I mean, he's the
0: lead in the film and it's, it, it doesn't feel yeah. like he's like a strong, strongly pulling through this film. Um,
1: I I know, going, we've, yeah, talked,
0: we've talked briefly about Phil Palmer, who was one of our teachers yeah. at film school on this podcast before. I'm going to I'm going to name check Phil Palmer again now because mm-hmm. I remember having a meeting in, with him once. And he just asked me what films I liked. And The, the Matrix came up. Yeah, and I really enjoy The Matrix. And and he was kind of saying, well, why, why do you like it? I, I I don't see it. You know, Why do you like Keanu Reeves? And I had to say, well, I, I do think he's very beautiful, actually. I think he's um just i i think he's just you know like a lovely presence on screen i think that counts for a great deal yeah. actually he's just a very very watchable beautiful man yeah. and i think you know, th- that alone is worth worth the cost of entry i think he really works
1: I, I think i agree with you he's roughly he's in my age group i know that i would love to hang out with Keanu Reeves
0: no question about yeah. it um, but i i guess there are
1: certain parts that i would want him in and then i don't know if i don't think of him as being a, an actor with super range so i think i would want to keep within <laughs> that range and Bill and Ted's—that's just magic. So I think that's where he belongs. And it's hard to take that into a—I don't know—a police inspector. Uh, I agree with you on the Matrix. I think I—I I actually liked the first film quite a bit. It def, definitely did not like the later films. But um, uh, uh. he's a special taste, and uh, I don't know. I—I I think he's perfect for this film, like on the dude stuff. But it doesn't seem like he nails the—the the investigator,
0: the undercover cop stuff as well. But. Yeah, well, I suppose he doesn't actually do any investigating, does he, really? He he kind of just turns up and watches some videos. If I have a complaint about this film and the way that it's kind of written and presented, I think I've written here simultaneously tight and flabby is what I've put in my notes here. Mm -hmm. Because I think that the plot clips along and there are some fascinating um, and surprising twists and turns. But there is quite a bit of not very funny stoner material in between. Mm. There are some scenes that feel kind of semi-improvised between Robert Downey yeah. Jr. and Woody Harrelson, which uh, m- might have been very funny at the time they were filmed, but aren't very funny to watch now and, and just sort of feel like they slow the whole film down. Yeah. I could have done with a bit less of that. But then the the film is just like a Town and a half. I think it's also like an hour and 40. It's, yeah. There's not a lot of time that you could cut no i didn't feel like my you know i didn't feel like it was wasting my time if you cut out the stoner material you'd only end up with about an hour and five minutes that's right which isn't quite enough for a feature
1: yeah but i i do know where that material should have gone like new path just sort of appears early on you get a little feeling for it because fred which is uh reeves's character when he's doing the undercover work in the um scramble suit i guess um he sort of infiltrates their meeting or something like that. And you get some information, but I think new path had to be more antagonistic and more active. And they creep up in the end when the story needs to wrap up. And I'm going to complain a little bit about the ending again here, because um, it turns out that Winona Ryder's character, who was, was it Dorothy? Do- Do- Donna. Isn't Donna, it Donna. And then she was also, I mean, everyone has a couple different names because it turns out she's <laughs> Hank, I guess. isn't Hank. The, yeah. yeah. Um, and then she's Natalie, I think, at the very end. <laughs> so you've got characters that have three different names. Um, turns out that it seemed like they intentionally wanted to get him addicted, intentionally get him into New Path rehab, and then inten- intentionally get him onto the farm so that they could sort of uh, infiltrate New Path and expose them for the the evildoers that they are. Um, and I I liked, I liked the concept, but I don't feel like New Path was in there throughout um, Substance D was. And I guess there was there's some sort of... Uh, guesses and conjecture that they were the ones producing substance D, but it sort of comes out later. And I think new path could have been in there a lot more. And I think that would have filled up some of the, um, the emptiness. And I think it just would have made the whole um, film quite a bit tighter.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But then uh, conversely though, you, you could ask, well, is that really what the film is about? I mean, it, it's, it isn't a police thriller because it's not very thrilling and there's very little police work. And if, if the main Crux of the film is about depersonalizing, de- depersonalizing effect of yeah. drugs. You know, by concentrating its energies on that, you know, you, you end up with something which is you know downbeat, um, but you know, it has a proper emotional impact. Mm. Um, you know, maybe actually I wonder whether it's the right decision is to have less police work and a little bit more. Yeah. Um, drugs is bad, MK. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, interestingly. Um, I, it's a long, many years since I read the book um, A Scanner Darkly um, and so I had to very quickly check oh. what the plot was and yeah. the film does adhere to the plot of the book very closely oh, okay. yeah it's very similar so I think it's the same with, with the book that um, he ends up going to New Path yeah. right at the end of the book and then discovering the blue flowers so it, it does remain very faithful to the book sure. which is you know, unusual for these Philip K. Dick adaptations you know Blade Runner is yeah wildly um, different yeah Exactly. I mean. That the, yeah. Most of the meat of what happens in a film takes up about four pages in the book, mm-hmm. um, and most of the book is about yeah artificial sheep. Yeah. Things like Total Recall. It's all you know. It's all based around just the idea from a Philip K. Dick short story, and it's yeah. It um. So most commonly, Hollywood takes these Philip K. Dick books and you know just just steals the nugget of the idea and then rewrites everything else around it. Yeah. Whereas Unusually, A Scanner Darkly, which I think is his best book, um, and it's had by far the most faithful adaptation. Uh, okay.
1: Yeah, it, it, what's striking is that, you know, Linklater looks a little prescient in 2006 for getting this out there, considering what power the pharmaceutical industry has over us now and and what ne'er dwells yeah. there. Yeah. And then that makes, you know, uh, um, Philip K. Dick even far more prescient in 1977 if he's writing about it. At that time. And that's, you know, I love that part about science fiction, how they predict, uh, the writers predict future so well. Um, So I I think it is a, it's a, it's a meaningful film in that way, um, because drugs are bad.
0: (laughs) I mean, yeah, I don't know, you watch this film and you come away thinking bloody hell, drugs are bad, aren't they? Oh my God. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I think it's a, you know, it's actually a relatively realistic um, depiction of, your life disintegrating on drugs. There's a scene towards the end where Winona Ryder drives Keanu out to the the rehab center, and he's yeah. just he's shivering in a blanket and vomiting yeah. on the floor, and you know, utterly debased and humiliated. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And that's yep. That's that's the deal. And then so compliant
1: um, with the people at New Path, where he just kind of repeats
0: their words. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. I like that. Yeah, uh, absolutely.
1: But the thing I didn't like about the ending, I think, is mostly that it, it sort of gets explained to you. Very quickly, between the Winona Ryder's character, who's Audrey by that point, and did you you reckon she was a police officer? Like, that was her I fact, think so, yeah. yeah I kind think of so. T- explaining, explaining what should have been shown and what we should have sort of learned as viewers throughout it. Kind of, you get a little one or two sentence explanation towards the end. It's, and it's, is it in... I don't know if it was a voiceover, which would have been doubly bad for you because you don't like that. I don't either. No, I hate voiceover. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> it was—it just felt a little, again, kind of on the nose at the very end, which I it saw in both films. So if we—if I had a connection between the two films, endings
0: would definitely be that connection. Yeah, you're right. It would be interesting to go back and watch his other films and see whether they. You know obey the same rule. Yeah. Like, you know. I wonder. Do you think? I. You know what? I think. I bet before sunrise, before sunset, does the same thing. I think you have the adventure with the characters, and then at the end, you know they're sitting in a room and they explain to you what the film's about. Yeah. You know, in a, in a couple of sentences. I think this is a yeah um a, a real theme uh, for Richard Linklater. I'm going to go back and watch yeah. School of Rock and see whether the oh, lyrics God. of the song at the end oh. are. <laughs> so <laughs> remember, good. kids, believe in yourself. Oh my God! So good. There's, there's one line, if I could do it
1: a little bit, just one more Keanu bit. He's seen yeah. doctors for his addiction or his brain problems. And at one point he says, wait, you mean the right side of my brain isn't communicating with the left side of my brain? <laughs> love that.
0: I love that. That's life. Um, I think uh, I scanned it darkly. So I didn't find much of an audience in. 2006 but i think i think this is a film that's got legs uh, yeah yeah you know it's still very watchable now i bet this film will still be very watchable in 20 years time yeah. or 30 years time i don't think we will have eliminated drugs in 20 or 30 years time and i think this film no. will be exactly as relevant the phones will look different but the, yeah. the story stays the same yeah and the animation uh,
1: um you know he did waking life a couple of years before that and then he's come back to that style of animation and that is that's like signature animation for him now and and it was funny how yeah. as soon as I watched uh, the Apollo film first, and I felt at home immediately because oh, I remember those films from nineteen, was <laughs> it the nineties? No, it was probably early two thousands, two thousand six for this. I think Waking Life was right before, right after, but yeah, uh, I think right before. Yeah, yeah, I felt right at home. It's like it took me back into my younger years, and yeah, it's, it, so, it's,
0: it's something kind of it's dreamlike and, and hallucinatory, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, which you know completely suits both of these films. Yeah. But then, yeah, films as dreams, that's a a theme that we should re-explore again in in other podcasts, actually, because I think, again, that's one of the that's one of the cruxes of what makes film what it is. I think it's taking dreams and and, and, and giving them a a kind of a, a life outside your head. Yes. And they can be a collective dream. I think people used to talk about them as being
1: because you sat down in the dark and you're all staring at this one bit of light sparkling across the screen um you know it's like this co- it's a collective dream it's a dream that we can all buy into A collective I mean, dream yeah and i wonder you know if we're yep. watching them increasingly on our own i didn't i should have watched uh apollo with some children just to get the full yeah, experience find some you know, children. I'm sitting alone
0: <laughs> drinking wine watching it that's not the way yeah, I'm to enjoy that. the collective dream yeah I'm, I'm quite impressed that we've got all the way from apollo town and a half to the, the crux of cinema being collective dreams that's that's you know that's a journey worth making. That's why. So I, I, yeah. I enjoy both of these films. I think they are both yeah. definitely worth an hour and forty minutes of your time. Absolutely. And I'd be and going to be interested to see what Rich Link, Rich Link later comes up with next. Yeah. actually, absolutely. He's you know, still got a few more films in him. Brilliant. So this has been the Two Real Cinema Club. Um, I hope you have enjoyed listening, and uh, join us again next time. Thanks and goodbye. Thanks goodbye everybody.